0: This is the Learning Capacity Podcast. You're with Colin Klupik. This podcast is brought to you by LearnFast, improving student learning outcomes with neuroscience programs since 1999. Are we eating too much sugar? In this episode, we explore this issue again as we talk with Carissa Wolfe, an accredited practicing dietitian with Diabetes New South Wales. Whilst it appears that we are eating the right foods, it seems as though we're eating less of them in favour of what Carissa calls sometimes foods or discretionary extras. Now, there's a mouthful. And on top of that, it seems as though these new foods are becoming what Carissa describes as more available, affordable, and enjoyable. So, where does all this lead us? Obesity, type 2 diabetes, or even just general bad health? Let's find out what we can do about it. Carissa Wolf, thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me, Colin.
0: It's a great pleasure, and uh, welcome to the show. Just to uh, clear a few things up, you are an accredited practicing dietitian, are you not?
1: That I am.
0: That's an incredible title. I'm struggling to say that articulately. It's a mouthful. It is. You wouldn't <laughs> it's a want to mouthful, say yeah. Yeah, you don't want to say that one three times quickly in a row. And you are a representative for Diabetes New South Wales. Yes. Okay, and that comes under the umbrella of Diabetes Australia. Can you just explain how that works briefly?
1: Sure. So each state and territory in Australia has a branch uh, under the umbrella of Diabetes Australia. And so Diabetes New South Wales, we're a not-for-profit charity and we're one of the longest lasting charities in the realm of diabetes.
0: Great. Now look, uh, sugar, which is the topic for today, is one of those topics that can divide and conquer uh, you hear a lot of bad things about sugar. Some people say that it's okay as long as you have natural sugars. So there's plenty of room for debate and discussion here, but I'm just going to launch right in. So the last few years, we have seen a few big uh, media issues come out of the the sugar discussion. And I'll go back to 2008. There was the book released by David Gillespie called Sweet Poison. Uh, the ABC, with their Catalyst program, with uh, scientists talking about various issues, got onto it by uh, with their episode called toxic sugar last year there was damon Gammo who came out with that sugar film uh the all of them were talking about the increased consumption of sugar over the decades in your experience with public health have you seen this trend as well
1: Look, I haven't seen that trend, Colin. I guess when we look at food trends in Australia, sometimes they call it a great paradox because when we look at what people are eating and drinking, consumption levels have actually gone down. When we look at the National Nutrition Survey and also like beverage consumption in in Australians, um, I guess what I have more of a trend of is a rise in what we call discretionary extras as a whole or as a collective. Uh And there are a group of foods I refer to as sometimes foods And uh, in Australia, particularly with our young children, when we look at a snapshot of what they're eating in a day, sometimes up to 36 to 40% of the intakes actually coming from these discretionary extras of which sugar is often a common ingredient. So things like our sugar-sweetened beverages, our soft drinks, things like our chocolate biscuits, chips, ice cream, confectionery, they have something in common, and that is sugar is the main ingredient. Um, But I guess I'd like to or as a collective whole.
0: So the sometimes foods are not really sometimes foods anymore, they're becoming more normal types of foods?
1: They are. And when they looked at a snapshot of a typical intake for a young person in Australia, when they looked at core foods, so things like whole grain, breads and cereals, fruits and vegetables, our meat food group and alternatives and dairy, you know, they were only making up you know, around 58% of their daily intake. So they are eating them, but unfortunately the discretionary extras are taking over and 42% of their daily intake was actually coming from these, you know, non-nutritious foods.
0: Uh, I love that term, discretionary extras. I'm thinking there's a whole new line of biscuits for that one, I reckon. (laughs) New Arnott's discretionary extras. How about that? Do Do you reckon that sort of rolls off the tongue?
1: Well, I think that's it's interesting when you look at the language of food as well, because um, I think often we like to have that emotive connection to it. And um, I think that's why I prefer to talk about it more as a sometimes, because sometimes it infers that, you know, sometimes it might be okay, it might have a place sometimes. But when we're eating that sometimes food every day, we're not talking about sometimes anymore. And and that's what's leading, you know, in terms of our public health issues, we're seeing a rise in overweight and obesity in our young children, which is transferring into adulthood and bringing with it increased risk for lifestyle-related chronic diseases, including type 2 diabetes and heart disease.
0: Yeah. The the type 2 diabetes is one that I'd like to come to a little bit later in the discussion, and I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. Um, Sure. With the... With the increase of these discretionary extras or the, or the sometimes foods, I'm even thinking there's a line of biscuits for the sometimes, you know, here's the sometimes chocolate classic or something like that. <laughs> uh, you know, you've mentioned to me that you do work on uh, taking people onto supermarket tours. Now, I found that just amazing when I read that. I thought, really? That's, that sounds a bit weird to me. Do, uh, do people find this a bit strange?
1: Look, you do get mixed reactions um, in terms of taking people into the supermarket. I guess it depends a little bit on what type of learner you are, but definitely when you're learning about label reading as a concept, um, people often want to learn about it in the supermarket where they shop so they know where to find healthier products. They can easily locate them and they can see it in practice. So rather than talking about this skill of label reading in terms of mathematics or or language, you're actually tangibly picking up a product of interest and you're looking at the label there and then and you're getting that instant feedback. And uh, many of our you know people that come along to supermarkets find that a very useful and tangible skill to have it at, at that time when it's most relevant.
0: Are they a little bit shocked at what they find?
1: It depends on the products. Like sometimes there can be a lot of um, sneaky ingredients or when you're looking at the label and looking at the percentage of fat or the amount of salt or the amount of sugar in products, um, sometimes it can be quite surprising. Um, Low-fat cheese is a wonderful example I like to use where you think low-fat, that must mean it's a good choice for me. And when you actually look at the salt content and it's more than four times the amount, of a standard cheese, you are left scratching your head going, well, what's the better choice?
0: Yeah, the fat or the salt. So is, is this an example of the sneaky food or the sneaky ingredient?
1: Yeah, that would be an example. So um, breads and even breakfast cereals are foods that you wouldn't necessarily associate as having hidden salt in them. Um, but when you read the label, sometimes you'll be quite surprised that your humble packet of cornflakes can actually have an incredible amount of sodium or salt in the label. Um, And same with our breads. You know, we don't necessarily relate to it as being a salty food. But when you look and compare across brands, there's definitely some that are much lower in, in extra sodium than others. And when we look at heart disease as being our top killer, it definitely pays to go for a lower salt, healthier option.
0: So just coming back to the breakfast cereals for a minute and thinking back to the sugar, because I want to focus on the sugar. Sure. Sure. When I'm looking at a label on a a cereal box, what sort of percentage, so I'm thinking grams per hundred, so we'll just keep it in percentages to keep it simple, what sort of percentage of sugar would you class as being on the high side?
1: Yeah, look... Sugar and cereal is an interesting one, we do get lots of questions about it and often when I give my answer, I, people often look at me with an interesting look because I think I'm usually telling them something they weren't quite expecting and that is when we're looking at a breakfast cereal, we're also looking at it in the context of where it fits in our diet. So it is our bread and cereal and we're looking at it more from what breakfast cereal, what am I going to get out of this breakfast cereal? And sugar is one element, and cereals, yes, can have a high amount of added sugars in them, but they're also essential source of dietary fiber and roughage in our diet. They're also a great source of carbohydrate or energy, mm. which we want for good brain food, and we want for good digestive health. So when you're looking at sugar you know, in a cereal, you're kind of overlooking the context of the cereal and where it fits in our day. And so also for people living with diabetes, we're often focusing more on the total carbohydrate that bowl of cereal is going to give you because that's going to have a more practical application in their diabetes management. So rather than looking at how much added sugar is in my breakfast cereal, perhaps looking at it in terms of how much fiber does it also offer me, how much total carbohydrate is eating a bowl of it going to give me and what's that going to do for my energy levels and my blood glucose levels. Mm. Um, and looking at you know how much contribution to to our fibre and roughage am I going to get because that's more protective against developing diabetes and heart disease the fibre element.
0: So coming back to the supermarket experience specifically now for young people, sugary foods and sugary drinks. Uh, I just I can't get the image of the supermarket tour out of my head. I'm just I'm picturing people in <laughs> floral shirts, you know, nice sun sun hat or something like that, a bit of zinc cream on the nose. Um, I'm sure it's not like that, of course. But, uh, <laughs> When I talk to school students in particular about going into the supermarket, um, you generally see things front and centre which are very high sugary uh, foodstuffs, like uh, particularly soft drinks. And in fact, it wasn't too long ago that I actually complained to a supermarket because they were having such a massive special. I think it was just after Christmas or in the lead up to Christmas, somewhere around there, where they must have had a lot of extra stock and they were selling things like Coca-Cola in massive quantities at very, very low prices. Mm -hmm. I get a lot of pushback from students uh, who don't actually see any harm in this? So young people these days are looking at that and thinking, "That's normal. That's okay." I'm wondering, have we been have we been brainwashed to think that that's okay, or or perhaps even worse, have we become so used to consuming sugar that we've developed such a liking that it could be called a dependence or perhaps a uh, an addiction?
1: Really great. Questions, Colin. And I guess here you're kind of touching on the role that supermarkets and the food industry has in terms of marketing products and product placement um, and the costing of food. Like in Australia, it's much cheaper to be able to walk in and buy a bottle of soft drink sometimes than it is the equivalent size volume of plain water. Um, often on the ends of the aisle, first and foremost, you're confronted with um, the week's special. And more often than not, it will be a discretionary extra. It will be a packet of crisps, it will be a packet of biscuits, it will be chocolate, it will be confectionery items, it will be soft drink. And in this day and age where we've got an interesting socioeconomic client, climate and parents are having to make these big decisions on, on what foods to purchase for their family, they often want to draw on something that's affordable, that's likeable. And it kind of feeds itself in a vicious cycle because these discretionary extras are affordable and they're tasty. And interesting on the topic of being addictive, when we look at brain chemistry as well and our addictive centers in our brain, you know, we do have – we're wired from a very young age as infants – to enjoy the taste of sweet things and fat as a, as a flavor as well. And so you're kind of reinforcing in a way in terms of the low cost, the availability of it in our food supply, the readiness of it, it's there at our fingertips. And especially for young people as they're starting to work or if they're given some money to buy a food choice, they want to pick something that's going to be quick and easy to grab that's quite filling and it's going to hit their taste centre. And so it's making it too easy to make an unhealthy choice.
0: Because historically sweet things were a lot rarer than they are today, I'm told.
1: Yeah, and especially when you look too at... uh, I love looking at the food preferences of our our migrants, so people on arrival to Australia. And uh, often um, when you see pockets in the community where these foods might not have been readily available previously... All of a sudden, they're available, they're affordable, and they're enjoyable, and so consumption increases, and unfortunately, it does lead to poorer health outcomes.
0: In a moment, we'll hear Carissa talk about some of the more confronting issues, such as obesity. And If you're interested in more discussion on sugar and learning, you can also explore the Learning Capacity podcast archives. In episode 26, we talk with Damon Gamow, maker of That Sugar Film, an informative and entertaining discussion on this controversial topic. I think at the moment we're really wrapped up in obesity and type 2 diabetes, and that's fair enough. We really need to deal with that. But I think over the next 10 years we'll start to switch our focus and really acknowledge that these kind of junk foods and high sugary foods are having an enormous impact on the way we focus and concentrate, mm. our learn, our cognitive development, even things like depression and anxiety, ADHD. It's all going to come out. It's just that the science has taken a while to get there. Once again, that's episode 26 with Damien Gammo. Is it as simple enough to say that, or can one say, that sugar causes obesity?
1: Obesity is an incredibly complex issue. And uh, I think as much as we'd like to put one finger on on the blame and say it's just one particular nutrient, it's definitely not as simple as that. Um, When we're looking at, in terms of Australia, our socioeconomic factors, um, I would say that has a big influence in terms of obesity and in terms of diabetes link specifically, and so what we know is that people that are living, you know, on, on the on the line, they do have poorer health behaviours. Um, statistically, they're more likely to lead and uh, have an unhealthier diet. They're probably going to have an increased consumption of, of sugar, sweetened beverages. Um, they're also more likely to smoke. More likely to drink alcohol in excess and more likely to be inactive, uh, more likely to be depressed and anxious. So, I don't think we can put our finger on one particular ingredient being the key to solving our obesity problem in Australia.
0: No, it doesn't sound like a very good cocktail at all. So, it sounds to me like there needs to be a much wider awareness of, of all of these health issues all joined together, where sugar is seen as, or sugar consumption is seen as, an important part such as exercise, such as smoking, such as alcohol. Are we on the right track with that?
1: Yeah, we're definitely on the right track. So, you know, we don't get there in, in one fell swoop. It's not one thing that will get us there. It's a combination of factors. And food supply is a very interesting one. They did a study recently in, in Sydney in particular, looking at the distance people have to travel to be able to access fresh fruit and vegetables. And in some of our communities that, are, you know, have most need actually had to travel the furthest just to get fresh fruit and veggies. Mm. Um, meanwhile, their takeaway outlet shop or their alcohol distribution outlet um, were within walking distance quite easily. Oh, dear. So, you know, <laughs> as a society, you know, are we already setting people up to make unhealthy choices? Um, same with the school canteen. You know, when you look at the school food environment, children are at school for set hours during the day. And so if we've got a responsibility to provide some healthy choices and, you know, if it becomes lunchtime and they're at a point of purchase, you know, it's all very good to to teach about healthy eating and good nutrition in the classroom. But if the food supply in the canteen isn't backing that up, what are we setting up?
0: Mm. So type 2 diabetes has generally been seen as an older person's problem. Typically, yet the media tells us that younger people increasingly are becoming diagnosed with type two diabetes. Now, let's think about school age children, so people up to the age of eighteen, let's say. Should these people, should school age kids, be aware of the fact that uh, conditions like type two diabetes may actually become a reality in their life if they are not aware of their or, or aware of their health choices? Let's put it that way.
1: I think awareness is certainly important. Um, Where we direct that awareness to is the interesting question. Um, With parents, for example, often uh, when working with parents, we often talk about the role of the parent is to provide healthy food choices and the child's decision is about how much of that they will eat. And sometimes I think, you know, we don't want to put the blame on children specifically saying, you know, if you don't eat well, you're going to develop diabetes because it's, it's sort of a bit of a blame game, and getting them in quite a negative health cycle, especially when there are other factors involved in terms of they might not be the main food preparer of the house, the purchaser of food in the house, and they don't have any, you know, say in terms of the income and that's spent on food choices. So. I guess I think it is important for children to be aware, but also it's, it's out of an awareness of how to promote some healthy positive behaviours um, rather than putting a blame or, or having, instilling this fear that you're going to get diabetes. I guess what we're really talking about is establishing healthy behaviours from the word go. So we know that children that have healthy food choices and are physically active are more likely gonna carry those behaviors into their adulthood life. And so they're setting themselves up for a really healthy future. And we're helping them establish that healthy future by looking at our food environment and our food supply Promoting those positive choices, so making it easy to be able to choose fruit as a snack, um, making it easy to include vegetables as part of their meals, You know, giving healthy alternatives so that they don't have to go for that high-fat, high-salt, high-sugar snack, that they can actually fuel up on some better nutrition for their bodies and set them up for a healthier future.
0: So how bad is type 2 diabetes anyway? I mean, is it okay for people to say, oh, look, it's all right, I'll, I'll manage it?
1: So type 2 diabetes is our leading chronic disease in Australia, and every day 280 people are diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, so it's definitely not going away. It is a very chronic disease, it's progressive, and it's one that doesn't go away. So with really good management, we can prevent complications and more negative things happening to our health but it does take management and involves lifestyle management in terms of healthy eating and physical activity. Um, But also some people will require additional treatment in the form of medication or injections of insulin. Um, So to to sort of, I've got this lovely term deniabetes and Ah. I think, you know, when we hear these horrible things that can happen as a result, sometimes like to think that it's not going to happen to us or it's not real for us. Um, But, Diabetes has a, has a habit of sneaking up and, and if we don't manage it well, you know, can have a huge impact on quality of life afterwards.
0: I think the deniabetes uh, is right up there with the sometimes chocolate specials. <laughs> the, it's all
1: in the language, isn't
0: it? Yes, or the Arnott's discretionary extras, chocolate flavoured.
1: <laughs> I mean, um, sometimes, I, like, I mean, I like to think about our body, our human body as, you know, a temple and, and what we put into it is going to have a huge input in terms of what we get out of it. And sometimes it's just looking at making smarter choices looking at the quality that you're putting in your body. If we want a good quality of life, we will need to be fueling up with some good quality fuel. And uh, they're definitely more of those everyday food that are going to give us some nutrients uh, for our body to work with.
0: I think you might actually be really onto something here. I'm just thinking about using the deniabetes pill as a as a placebo so for example if there was a diabetes den- pill you could take it every day just to remind yourself of healthy food choices and of course the pill would have nothing in it other you know some sort of innocuous substance it could even just be filled with water or something like that but i reckon uh, that's uh, that could be quite a marketable thing what do you think
1: well we could definitely give it a go <laughs> <laughs> we'd have to
0: get we'd have to get some uh, marketing person in some random fi- pharmaceutical company to uh, give it some consideration so, With some awesome product placement and some great
1: packaging, <laughs> yeah. and we need to make it sound really sexy. Yeah,
0: that's right. And we need to make sure that the pill is in one of those really nice, easy-to-swallow capsules, one of those kind of iridescent green ones or something like that. <laughs> so how does, uh, how does a person become sugar-aware? Can we stop the cravings?
1: Cravings is an interesting term. And I think it comes back to when we're talking about the brain before and that brain center and and where we really, you know, develop that sort of taste preference. Um, I think naturally, as human beings, we, we love to eat foods that we enjoy the taste of. And it hits that positive reward center of our brain where, you know, we form that nice positive association. It's tasty, we enjoy it. Therefore, when I am at a point of making a choice, whether it's a buying a food product in the supermarket or at the school canteen or going out to you know a restaurant or eating out and takeaway you know we often tend to make choices fueled by that moment that instant gratification what's going to taste good what am I gonna like you know the most in and, and sometimes I guess it's about putting a little pause in there to realign with what also is important for your health and well-being so For those of us who, you know, if we value our health and our well-being and whether it's preventing type 2 diabetes or managing type 2 diabetes, you know, yes, we want to choose foods that are going to be enjoyable and pleasurable. But we're also thinking about in that moment, you know, what's the best fuel for my body and what's going to be the best choice, you know, that's going to lead to some good health outcomes.
0: Sounds like some great advice there. Carissa Wolf. thanks very much for your time. Thanks, Colin. You've been listening to the Learning Capacity Podcast brought to you by LearnFast. If you'd like more information about diabetes related issues, you can find Diabetes New South Wales on the web at diabetesnsw.com.au. And if you'd like to leave a comment on this podcast, send us an email to feedback at learnfastgroup.com.au. To find out more about LearnFast and neuroscience based learning programs, visit learnfasthome.com.au. I'm Colin Klupik. Until next time, bye for now.